has risen, our evidence. There's no doubt in the spirit whom you've given to us to witness to our spirits that Christ is alive, but also as he does so in this word. So we pray now that your word would have uh, great work in our own hearts. And that, Father, that we'd see it and believe in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 52 and verse, actually verse 13. And I want to read through chapter 53 and verse 12. Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 13. Hear the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us and to whom? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge he shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, the reason that I come to this uh, particular passage this morning is, of course, number one is that it's in the Bible. Number two, that in many occasions throughout the New Testament, we have this expression that Christ was crucified and rose according to the scriptures. This is one of those scriptures. But really, because it's the capstone of what we've been talking about during this Lenten season, uh, during this Lenten season, we've actually been going through, as those of you who have been with us know, 
the first six chapters of Leviticus, which deal with these sacrifices in ancient Israel. And, 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 and really the design of the book of Leviticus is to answer this question for us. It's a very fundamental question. In fact, it may be the most fundamental question of life. And that is, how can God dwell among us? How can God dwell among us? In fact, we traced that question uh, all the way back to the book of Genesis. So I'm going to do that just as a bit of a, re- a re- of a review. You, you have to understand that on Easter Sunday sermons, there's two approaches, and I've taken both of them throughout the years. Sometimes we just speak specifically about about a particular aspect of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, and then the other approach is to tell you everything. And, and I'm taking that approach today. So just relax. So we're going to go back and review what we've been doing somewhat, at least in, in, in establishing this question. This question is, how can God dwell among us? This very fundamental question. And I want to trace back, just very quickly, how this became a question in the first place. You remember, in the beginning, God created. So God created. In the midst of his creation, he creates Adam, Adam and Eve. He creates people, the crown of his creation. Uh, in doing so, he, he rules over them in his sovereign love and justice, and he provides for them everything that they need, and he instructs them that they are to be fruitful and multiply. Thus, you get the impression that under God there will be a people, a a large number of people, to worship him. So he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He tells them also to to, uh, uh, take dominion over the earth, that is, under him to rule. And we know that they're going to do all of this because they've been created in his image. That is, they've been created to honor him. They've been created to obey him. They've been created to reflect him. That is, that, 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 that it should be that they should see in one another the very characteristics of God. And most especially, uh, his love. And thus they were to love each other, and they were to love their offspring, and they were to love him. And thus they were to reflect God in all of that. You understand as well that by Genesis in chapter 3, there was a temptation that came to them. Because God had told Adam that he could eat from every tree of the garden save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now it doesn't appear to us that there was inherent in the fruit of this tree knowledge of good and evil. That is, if you ate it, all of a sudden you'd be smart. The point being that in this test before him, it was really a test for Adam and Adam's heart. Who is it who gets to define what is good and evil? Is it God or is it us? I mean, that's the real fundamental question. And so Satan comes along, you remember, and he tempts Eve first. And he begins to show her the fruit and she begins to look and so forth. And finally, as you know, she eats. She succumbs to the temptation. And in so doing, in essence, as she gives it to Adam, and they both eat, they're saying, we're the ones who determine what is good and evil, not God. And thus the temptation of the evil one was, if you eat of this tree, you can be like God. Because he's the one who determines good and evil. It was a lie. They didn't become God. We're still not the ones who determine good and evil. God still is. But yet, in the hearts and minds of human beings, that takes over to the point that, because of that sin and the corruption that it brings, we actually believe that we are the measure of all things. We actually believe that it's our right to determine who we are. We actually believe it's our right to define who we are as human beings, what our life is to be. We actually believe that it's our right to direct our own lives. And we actually believe, then, that we should delight in that which we define and that which we direct. 
And you see, that turns everything on its ear. Because that isn't the way it's to be at all. And so you can see, right at this very moment, the hostility develops between God and us and us and God. Between God and us, because still he is just. And thus he must respond to this rebellion in justice. And the way that he responds in justice, the Bible uses the phrase wrath. And God's wrath is his reasonable, right response to our rebellion, to our sin. And so you see the hostility then, this wall that's built between God and us. And we see it also then between us and God, between human beings and God. Because of this hostility, because of this rebellion, God now is a threat to us. Because if we want to be God and he wants to be God, that's a problem. And so we see that God is a threat to us and we're afraid then to go before him for fear that he'll be God in the context of our lives and knowing deep in the recesses of our hearts that because of our sin there's this just judge and he's a threat to us. And we can even see that being played out in the Garden of Eden as God casts them from the garden. And everything that was to be life to them now becomes a struggle. No longer is there this intimacy with God. No longer is it the fact, as the scripture says, that God was walking in the cool of the garden. No longer is there this intimacy between human beings and God. They're cast in that sense from his presence. But also everything that was to be life to them becomes a struggle. Childbearing becomes a struggle. Work becomes a struggle. Relationships now become a struggle. Everything is a struggle that was to be joyous, wonderful life to them. And not only that, physical death enters into the race as a representation that life from God is now gone. That life is cursed. You see that play out in the early uh, chapters of Genesis. We see murder. We see injustice. God comes, then you remember, and judges the world by flood, saving the family of Noah. Things, however, in the hearts of human beings uh, do not change. So we see... Again, that human beings begin to try to make a name for themselves. They build this tower so that they can have a name for themselves rather than build something to the glory of God. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 12, we happen upon this man, Abraham. God shows up and he makes promises to this man, Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A few chapters later, Genesis chapter 15. We find that God makes more promises to Abraham, clarifying his previous ones. Part of the blessing to Abraham, as he becomes known, is that he will have descendants, so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. And so we get this sense again that God is at work and he will have for himself a people who will worship him. These descendants now, it appears, of of Abraham. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or accounted to him as righteousness. That is, he was made right before God, not because of anything inherent within him, but because he trusted, he believed in God. He didn't trust in himself. He didn't look to himself to define his own ways, but he looked to God. And thus he was counted as right. He was right in the sight of God. Well, those descendants of Abraham came, some miraculously, some otherwise. Those descendants came and they grew. And as we traced the other night on our Thursday evening service, As they traced the other night, they ended up in Egypt, became enslaved, and in their enslavement, you remember, they cried out to God, and in crying out to God, he remembered his covenants, and he came to them. And he delivered them through this man, Moses, and brought them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them his law, and he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Thus the question, 
how can God live among them? How can God, who is holy, live among an unholy people? How can God, who is holy, live above, uh, among a people who themselves have inherent within them this bent to be God? How can that take place? We well, remember, because this is what we spent Lent on, that God said he was going to build, they were to build a tabernacle and he was going to live within it in this most holy place and he was going to live among them there. And in living among them there, he gave them these sacrifices. And he says, if you want to live in my presence, this is how you do it. You must be holy and your sin must be dealt with. And so he said, since you are not holy, what I'll do is I'll take in your stead a representation of holiness, an unblemished animal. You take that unblemished animal, identify with it, bring it to me as it's you. And then I'll take its life rather than your life. And it will be completely consecrated to me as you should be. And because of this atonement, because its blood was shed that you may live, because of this atonement and this purification that comes, then I will receive you and I will dwell among you. And your sins will be forgiven. And I will remember them no more. And you will have peace with me. And peace with each other. And so we see in the midst of all that, that the way that God can live with human beings is only if we're holy and our sin is dealt with. But these sacrifices were only acceptable, that is, they were only accepted by God if they were done with a, from a heart of gratefulness. A heart of gratefulness, a person bringing the sacrament, sacrifice that was just simply apathetic, that says, well, I just have to do this, and you know, this is just, just what we do. If I do this, then all will go well with me. It was an acceptable. An acceptable sacrifice came only from one who was grateful, that is, who knew God, who God was, knew who he or she was, understood then what that meant, which was that I should come under the judgment of God. But then understood the grace that God was giving them through this sacrifice and thus was grateful to say he's going to take the life of this rather than my own life. And thus it must be brought in faith, trusting that all that was true. Thus God living amongst his people. And it seems that these sacrifices went on and on and on and on and on. There were morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices. A sacrifice burned all day and it burned all night. And then there were individual sacrifices that could be brought in devotion to God. And then there were, there were, there were weekly Sabbath sacrifices. There were monthly sacrifices. There were yearly sacrifices. On and on and on and on and on and on. In the tabernacle and the temple, there would always be smoke, if you will, coming from the altar as a sign that we must be holy and our sin must be dealt with. And just as the weariness that we receive sometimes when we read through Leviticus in our yearly reading, and it seems to go on and on and on and on and on, can you imagine what it would be like for a people to live that way generation to generation to generation to generation? And so... Through the scripture, eventually we come to a point where you get this sense that God is going to send someone who will be the sacrifice. And so we see it here in this chapter in Isaiah. Just look at this, beginning with verse 1 in chapter 53. It begins like this. Who has believed what they have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, basically, as they says, who's going to believe this? Who's going to believe that the strength of God, the salvation of God, the arm of the Lord, the salvation of God has really been revealed? Who's going to believe it when it happens? 
Verse 2, for he, so we get a very personal sense here, someone's coming. Isaiah's already hinted at this one who will come in chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So you get the sense one is coming. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That is, he wasn't going to be the Savior. He wasn't going to be this sacrifice because of his good looks. He was just going to be like everybody else. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, that is. He would suffer. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, that is. Even though he would be would suffer, uh, people would think, oh, God is doing this because he deserves it. Verse 5, but, here's the real truth, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. It's all for us that this is going to take place. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've Turned everyone to his own way. That's the reason that this servant must come. Because of our sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what he would take. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In other words, he's just going to be like, in some sense... These sacrifices that were brought daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly, they they just go and allow themselves to be sacrificed. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That is, you're not going to quite get this. Who's who's really going to get this? This is going to be unfathomable to you. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. That is, he died. He had a grave. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He would die. But yet he was innocent. And he would die for us. That's what would happen. That's what, that's what all these sacrifices were pointing to. And now here's one who will come and be that very sacrifice. Now the question, though, the question is, would it work? I, I get this sneaking suspicion that if I were living in ancient Israel, I'd bring this goat, this lamb, this ram, this lamb. And I would bring it before God and i go, this is a pretty good deal. This is just an animal. And, uh, but how can it really stand for me? And, and and even though God had instituted this, I begin to wonder, is this really going to work? Huh. How can this be? And so now, even as Isaiah begins to place this before us, the question, will this work? Will God really accept this sacrifice? Will this really be true? Then, verse 10 begins that answer to us. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see, it was 
This was God's will to do this. It's God's will to take this servant and to crush him. Now, the little word will, when we think about it, oftentimes we think of it rather in a rather objective kind of way. Well, it's just God's will. That's just the way it's going to be. But we also really need to connect the word will with the word desire. This was God's desire, not simply his plan, though it was his plan, but this is his desire to do this. This is something he wants to do. In fact, in other places in Isaiah, in fact, in the New American Standard Version of this verse, it says, Now, it pleased God to crush it. That is, when you look deeply into the heart of God, he says, I'm going to send this servant. Not only is this my plan to do this, but this is really what I desire to do. This will satisfy, God says, the longings of my own heart. To crush him. To do this. And so we ask the question, will this servant really be able to bear our sins? Really be able to to take our iniquities? Really be able to save us? The answer is yes. In part because this this is the heart of God. This is what will satisfy him. And not only will it satisfy him, it will satisfy his servant. His servant will desire this as well. Notice in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, that is the servant, he, that is the servant, shall see and be satisfied. And so the servant is going to come. And he's going to look like everybody else. And he's going to take upon himself, though he be innocent, He's going to take upon himself our sins and iniquities and sorrows and everything that's the result of sin. He's going to take it upon himself and he's going to see what his father has ordained for him and be satisfied with that. That is, that will satisfy the longings of his own heart. He'll see the fact that it's the Lord's will to crush him and he'll say, yes. In fact, you'll say, there's nothing other than being crushed that would satisfy my heart. Will this work? Yes. Why? Because God's behind it. This will reveal and satisfy his own heart. Will it work? Yes. Why? Because the servant is behind this. It will satisfy his own heart. And notice what he does, this servant. He comes in verse 10 in all that we've read even so far, but in verse 10 he says, he'll make an offering for sin. Notice in verse 11 it says, he will bear their iniquities. Notice in verse 12 it says, he poured out his soul to death. Again, he bore the sin of many. That's what he's come to do. That's what will satisfy him. That's what will crush him. And that's what will satisfy the very heart of God. And notice the result of of what happens because of this servant's coming. Notice verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Some of your versions, if you have the New International Version, simply says that he will justify many. Those are two similar expressions. They're two ways of saying the same thing. To account someone righteous or to justify them. You know that if you've done something wrong or people think you've done something wrong and you want to justify yourself, what do you do? You show them that you really didn't do it. 
Right? That's to justify yourself. Uh, if someone accuses you and they say, now justify yourself, what they mean is, show me that you really didn't do this. Show me that you're really not guilty of this. Now, our problem is that we're actually guilty. And so when someone comes to us and says, show me that you didn't really do this, we're kind of dumbfounded. Thus, this servant will come and through his life and death will, it says, make many to be accounted or declared righteous. Think about that. That's exactly what we need. When we ask the question, how is it that God can live among us? The answer is, well, if we were righteous, then he could live among us. That, that would really make it work. Because he would be holy, and there would be a sense in which we would be holy. And if we can be declared righteous, then this whole situation is going to work. God can really live among us. And when God lives among us, then we're protected and we're provided for, and we belong to him. So he said, through this servant, many will be accounted righteous. He will justify, he will justify many. And not only that, notice this. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. See, not only will be many, many accounted as righteous, but there'll be offspring. And, and, and again, that's exactly what, what we've been looking for. Remember the promise to Abraham that there'll be many descendants. So look at what this suffering servant is going to do. He's going to bear our sins so that we can be accounted righteous. And in his bearing of our sin and in his work comes offspring, comes new life, comes more and more to belong to him. The question, will this work? Yes, why? Because it's God's will to do this. It pleases him to do this. And not only that, notice verse 10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. Now that is one of the most significant little expressions in all the Old Testament. Because when Jesus was talking about himself going to Jerusalem and dying, being crucified, and being raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, he said, my days will be prolonged. My body will not see decay. My Father will raise me. And thus we see in the midst of this Jesus, don't we? How could we really miss him? How could we know anything about what Jesus did and who he was and miss him in this prophecy of Isaiah? Because there he is. He's the very one who's borne our sins. He's the very one who's taken our iniquities. He's the very one through whom we are declared righteous by his righteousness given to us. Jesus himself. And he's the one who's been raised from the dead. Now, it's amazing to me in the midst of all this, and we've talked about this before from time to time, but it's so important for us to come back and revisit this whole notion about the fact that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased God to crush him. So often, especially in the last couple of years, the question has been raised, who killed Jesus? Who was really responsible for the death of Jesus? And we can play that game. We can go over a number of ones. We can say Judas had some responsibility. And certainly, in a temporal kind of way, he did. He betrayed Jesus. He brought him to his captors and crucifiers and so forth. 
We could say that the Jewish authorities had some responsibility because they trumped up charges and they brought him before Pilate and they pushed through the crucifixion. We could say Pilate had some responsibility uh, in, in the death of Jesus as well, in his, in his cowardice. We can even say we were responsible because it's our sin that put him there in the first place. But God won't share this responsibility with anybody. He says, it was my will. It pleased my heart to crush him. It's interesting to me, students often, so this must be an argument given on campus quite a bit. Students often come to me and say, wasn't it immoral for God to cause Jesus to suffer for others when he had not committed sin himself. And I say, it would have been had he not been in agreement. I mean, it surely would be immoral to simply just sort of grab somebody out of the crowd and beat them for somebody else's sin. But if someone steps out of the crowd and says, I'll take it, because I love them, that's not immoral. So he and the Father were of one, not only mind, but one heart. Before the creation of the world, when this plan was devised. And I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. I don't know, I don't know anything about before the creation of the world. That, that's just the concept out there. But, but this is when all this was devised. When I, the answer would be, of course, from all time. And you want to say, well, when was that? <laughs> But before the creation of the world, when the Father and the Son, the Spirit, were loving one another. And the plan was made to create us and redeem us. The Father and the Son were of one accord. The Father said, I want my heart to be known. And here's the dilemma that will be put. The dilemma is that my heart exudes justice and my heart exudes love. And the dilemma will be, the very ones I will desire to love will be rebellious towards me and deserve my wrath. It is my heart's desire, Jesus, to crush you so that they will know who I am. And Jesus, in return, would say, it's my heart's desire. What would satisfy me more than anything else would be for you to crush me so that they might know you. That they might know your perfect justice and they might know your infinite love. And you see, those were melted right in the cross of Jesus. And so Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him when he came. He was not only sent, he came. And when he came, he said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. And he said, I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so he would tell his disciples, I need to go to Jerusalem. There's a wonderfully chilling verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where in the old, one of the older versions, it simply says, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when I'm reading through that passage and I come to that point, cold chills come over me because you get this sense that Jesus, oh, he wasn't playing around in Luke 1 through 8. But all of a sudden, in the middle of, or the end of chapter 9, in, in Luke's gospel, he says, now, now this has been preliminary, but now I'm, I'm going. And step by step you can see that he's walking towards his own death. 
because he knew that precisely why he had come, to be crushed. And he didn't despise that. He embraced that. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that it was the joy, was for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Meaning, I won't even let its shame keep me from it. John's whole gospel, as he writes it out, revolves around this little expression. In the beginning of John's gospel, we read from time to time, uh, Jesus saying, but, but my time has not yet come. But then right before the crucifixion, as he enters Jerusalem, he says, the hour is here. He knew it. So this wasn't something Jesus did involuntarily. This is something that he embraced. So it wasn't immoral on behalf of his father to put our sins upon him. He desired to do it. Why? So that he could show how great God is in loving us. Amazingly so. And then there's this fact of resurrection. You see, it was that very fact of resurrection that that's the ultimate proof that the father accepted the son's sacrifice. You see, if he had remained dead, then we would have the impression that he was like everybody else. That he died for his own sins. But the truth of the matter, he didn't die for his own sins. When he was on the cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? The great confusion there in the minds of many throughout history has been, how is it that the Father could forsake the Son when he was innocent? And the answer is, though he himself be inherently innocent, He had upon him the guilt of our sin. That's why he was forsaken. Not for his own sin, but for ours. And so you see, once he had paid the penalty for our sins, he was free to go. And he rose from the dead to be the first among all those who would believe in him and be raised from the dead spiritually through life and physically one day. And so you see, his resurrection is crucial. He knew that he would rise again. He told his disciples he would rise again. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. They're going to kill me, and I'll rise on the third day. Now, if you're not going to make the shot, don't call it. Right? And so he called it. His disciples didn't believe it. They didn't understand it. Just like Isaiah said, who's going to believe this? Who's going to believe this? They're going to think that that he's dying for his own sins. They're going to think, they're not going to realize that, that it's for their transgressions that he's being cut off. But it's really true, and they would come to believe it when, when he rose and came and told them. And he clearly did. The tomb was empty. Nobody had any reason, if they had stolen the body, to keep it. But the tomb was empty. And Jesus came to people. And they believed. Newsweek even said so. (laughs) Yes, it really did. How Jesus became Christ. You should read this article. Two-thirds of it is really pretty good. Jesus is a name, Christ, a title. Without the resurrection, it's virtually impossible to imagine that the Jesus movement of the first decades of the first century would have long endured. A small band of devotees might have kept his name alive for a time, even insisting on his messianic identity by calling him Christ. But the group would have been just one of many sects in first century Judaism, a world uh, roiled and crushed 
by the cataclysmic war with Rome from 66 to 73, a conflict that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about theology and you know anything about Newsweek, you get a sense that you're all of a sudden on a roller coaster. He's going to tell you that, that, the, that, that, that the resurrection was invented so that the Jesus movement would continue. But interestingly, I don't know who this guy is, but interestingly, he says the uniqueness, one could say oddity, or implausibility of the story of Jesus' resurrection argues that the, that the tradition is more likely historical than theological. Now he messes up at the end. But, but, but not badly. Not, not even that badly. But, but, but that's the point, you see. It's an historical fact. See, Christianity has happened. See? It isn't just a philosophy of life. It has happened. It has taken place. And the point is that you and I need what Jesus did. He did something. And so doing something is what's significant there. He died for us. He lived for us. His righteousness for us, the atoning sacrifice to cover our sins, all of that we need. He doesn't do that. No one else can. We're sunk thus Christianity is Christ. And there's a great exchange, as we talked about last Sunday, this great exchange that goes on. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness, thus we're accounted righteous. Our sins forgiven, his righteousness ours. Amazing. Can God dwell among us? Can we live in his presence? Yes. How? By faith. In Christ. You see, that's how it's appropriated. That's how we enter into this. That's how we know it's true. That's how, that's how we come to be God's very offspring. By faith. I could take you through the whole Bible. I return to Genesis now. Um, <laughs> Romans in chapter 3, very quickly. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, you know what that word means, propitiation. That which satisfies the wrath of God. Some of your versions have a sacrifice of atonement. That's correct, but it's no more understandable than the word propitiation. They both mean the same thing, that he is satisfied God's wrath as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, believing, you see you turn away from trusting in yourself to turn to him this was to show God's righteousness you see the dilemma that I mentioned a few minutes ago, God desires to love an unholy people, how can he do that and be righteous this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. All those years, he kept taking those animals. All those years. <clears throat> and that was just the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat and the blood of a lamb. But he took it. It's a bit of a down payment, perhaps. As a symbol. 
This was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's by trusting him. Not that much different than the Old Testament believers who would identify with this animal and say, God, I trust you that it will take my sin. I trust you that it will make me righteous in your sight. But now we come with more revelation. We come with the person of Christ himself. And we say, amazingly so, he's identified with me. And he's taken my sin upon himself. And he's given me his righteousness. I trust in that. I trust in him. And him alone. Now notice one last point, Isaiah 53. And verse 12, he writes, Therefore I, the Lord, I, will divide him, Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's a wonderful expression, because actually he's speaking of us there when he says strong. And I always have to smile, because we started out as these sinners for whom he had to die. And then we moved to his offspring, which was a wonderful bump up. And then we're those accounted righteous, but now he says the strong. Why? Because he's won the victory over sin and death. Thus, we've won the victory over sin and death. In him. So we're now, amazingly so, the strong. And the spoils which he gives to us is everything that Jesus, everything that Jesus won, if you will. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. Power over the dominion of sin. When we die, we shall live. Access to God through Christ. Without fantasy. And by that I mean, we don't have to pretend that he's hearing us. We know that he is. Because we come in the name of Christ. Everything that Jesus won, he shares with us. And then, last line of Isaiah 53. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. How can he do that? Because he's alive. And being alive, it means that he's in heaven. And being there, because he ascended there, he intercedes for us. That is, he's always there as our advocate. Anything ever said bad about us, Jesus picks that right up. He says, ah, got that. Covered that. Right? He's there always interceding for us. Enabling us to persevere. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's argument is, listen, if he gave you his son, don't sweat the details. He'll share everything with you. He's already given you his son. So, so, so why would you not believe that he won't share every victory, every spit that he's won with you? Don't, don't worry about those things. Trust him. Now, the so what of all this. Two categories of so what application. One, for unbelievers and for those who have friends who are unbelievers. And secondly, for believers. Okay? For unbelievers, the application uh, is this. Trust in Jesus. If, if you want to know how it is that you can live in the presence of God, how it is any of us can live in the presence of God, there really is only one way, and, it, and it's His. And it works. Every time. Without fail. Because it's His desire to do that. And so continue to seek Him. Continue to pray that, that God will change your heart. That you can see it. That as Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 says, who, who will believe the arm of the Lord? Who will believe in this salvation? And the answer really is those God works in. So go to Him. Ask Him to change your heart that you might see it and believe understanding that it pleased God to crush His Son. It pleased the Father to crush His Son. That his very heart is a desire to save. And if you have unbelieving friends, kids, parents, friends, we all have lists of people we pray for. Pray with confidence. Share with them with confidence. Knowing the heart of God. It pleased him to crush his son. Meaning, God was saying, I don't want them to bear their own sin. Jesus, I want you to do that. Do that. And in being crushed, Jesus was satisfied saying, I don't want them to bear their own sin. It satisfies me to bear it. There's tremendous mystery here. Pray with confidence. Share with confidence. Knowing the very heart of God. Plead with God. For those you love, for your children, for your spouse, for your parents, for your friends. Plead with God on the basis of his very heart. God, if you don't bear their sin, they will bear it. Please save them. And for believers, never forget it's true. Right? Never forget it's true. That he is your sin bearer. He is your righteousness. He's alive. He's making intercession. Everything that's promised is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would grant to us this wonderful grace to always know that Jesus is alive and to believe what he's done. 
May we walk with, that we may walk in that grace all the time. For those here and those I know who don't believe, Father, on the basis of your heart, your desire that people not bear their own sin, I pray that you would save many. And for all of us, that we would walk in the wonderful benefit of living in the presence of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. If you do, I remind you, elders will be available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is the Easter expression that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Please receive this as God's benediction now. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.